0: Turn with me to the New Testament book of Luke, chapter 1. Luke is a gospel, which means that it's one of the first four books in the New Testament. It's the third one, in fact, so if you're looking for it for the first time, you're going to turn to the New Testament, and then it's the third book in. And we call it a gospel with a capital G because these four books at the beginning of the New Testament are all unique in that they they recount for us the narrative of the birth, life, ministry, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of the four gospels, uh, if you've been to any Christmas Eve services in the past, Christmas services, Advent services, you know that the majority of what we know about Christmas as far as specifics go and the the actual birthday of Jesus, all of that comes from Luke's gospel. And uh, I was thinking about Christmas as we were driving home from Thanksgiving, and you know there is no other season of the year that is so defined by music. There's no other season of the year that has its own genre of music that is just all completely dedicated, that, you know, once Thanksgiving Day hits, all of a sudden all the channels flip over, and there's this whole catalog of music that we all agree, yes, this is the music for the season, Christmas music. Any other time of the year, if you showed up on someone's doorstep singing, they might call the police but you do it during Christmas season and they might give you uh, cookies and cocoa. There's something about singing and Christmas that just go together. It has its own carols, its own section in our hymnals, its own traditional music. We even tolerate terrible 80s pop music because it's, quote, Christian, or, uh, Christmas tradition music, right? Or we'll listen to uh, strange synthesized Orchestra music from the Siberian Orchestra, just because it's, it's from Christmas. And songs about mommy committing infidelity with a fat bearded man under a Christmas tree, or grandma being turned into roadkill. <laughs> Simply because it's all a part of the Christmas season. For some reason, Christmas makes us sing. The Gospel of Luke captures the spirit of the season perfectly because it is filled with Christmas carols. Mary sings. Elizabeth sings. Zechariah sings. Angels sing. Shepherds sing. Simeon sings. Anna sings. And so this Advent season, we're going to look into the Gospel of Luke and all of his Christmas carols, and we're going to choose one and we're going to study it for a couple of weeks together, a Christmas carol sung by the priest Zechariah. And it's actually a Christmas song that he wrote not on the birthday of Jesus, but on the birthday of his own son, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin who was born six months before Jesus. So you might say that uh, that Zechariah was the one who started the tradition of celebrating Christmas in July. Because his son, you know, born six months before Jesus. So as we look at his song this morning, I pray that it will summon our hearts to join in blessing the Lord this Christmas. So, if you found Luke chapter 1, let's turn to verse 67 and we'll stand together as we read. to show the mercy mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray. God, we ask that this Christmas carol would sink deep into our bones and would rattle in our hearts and would come out of our lungs and that this Christmas we would cling To this hope in the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, we are only going to focus on the opening two lines of Zechariah's Christmas Carol, verses 68 and 69. Let me read them to you once more. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Zechariah's song begins with the words, Blessed be the Lord. How do we do that? How do we bless the Lord? How do we bless the Lord this Christmas? I think that Zechariah begins his song by showing us three ways that as we begin to think about the Advent season and we think about Christmas time and we want to bless the Lord. There's three ways that He shows us we can do that. Number one, we bless the Lord when we pray for His visitation. Secondly, when we hope in His redemption. And thirdly, when we believe in His salvation. Pray for His visitation. Hope in His redemption and believe in His salvation. Well, if we're going to understand... The first point this morning, we actually have to go back to the beginning of the Christmas story uh, at the very beginning of Luke. And traditionally, we think of the Christmas story beginning in Luke chapter 2, right? In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree and so on and so forth and Mary and Joseph and Bethlehem and the manger and the shepherds and the angels, right? Right? But the Christmas story doesn't actually begin in Luke chapter 2 with Mary and Joseph in a stable. It begins in Luke chapter 1 with an elderly man in the temple praying. Let's turn back there. The beginning of Luke chapter 1. Look at verse 8 with me. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So in Luke's Gospel, the Christmas story begins with prayer. The prayer of A multitude of people standing outside and the prayer of one singular elderly priest named Zechariah. The angel uh, appears to Zechariah and it's as if he's saying the entire story that's about to be laid out here in the gospel of Luke. It all is going to come to pass in response to your prayers. You prayed for this. the story tells us that Zechariah was so startled, he was so taken aback by the angel's promise to him that he found it hard to believe. And if you go on to read the rest of the story, the angel actually seals his lips and says, You know what? For the next nine months, you're going to eat your words and you're going to watch your wife's stomach grow and you're not going to be able to talk until this baby is born. But on the day that his son John came out, his lips were unlocked. And the first words that proceed from the mouth of his father is a Christmas carol. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited. Brothers and sisters, Zechariah and the people prayed for the visitation of the Lord. And guess what? He came. He came. This Christmas, should we not do the same? Luke's Christmas story begins not next to a manger, but next to an altar of incense inside the temple of God, which was a constant reminder and encouragement for God's people to be lifting up their voices and their cries to the Lord in prayer before His throne. Praying for something more. Something more than beautiful walls and pristine columns, something more than fancy breastplates and robes and embroidered curtains, something more than silver and gold. What good is an empty house of God? What good is a temple if the Lord is not there? We surely have to imagine Zechariah there before the altar of Vincent Prince Praying prayers like Isaiah 64. Oh, Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down. He wasn't in there singing, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. No, he was saying, open the eyes of my head, Lord. You gave me these eyes so that I could see you for real. I don't want to see you in some spiritual sense. I want you to come and visit your people and I'm going to lay eyes on you. When Zechariah prayed for the visitation of the Lord, he came. The newborn son John that he held in his hands was not just another baby. He was going to be the crier of the king, the one who would call out before the coming of the king, Make way! Make his path straight! Your Lord and God has come to visit you! You know, the word that we use for the Christmas season sometimes is the word Advent. Do you know what that means? Advent means visitation. The Advent of the Lord, the visitation of God, came because a few faithful people, like Zechariah, were praying for it. Crying out, pleading out of the darkness for the Lord, the God of Israel, to come. I wonder whether the Lord Jesus tarries because we don't cry out like we long for his coming. We've become complacent in our land of exile. We live as though this really is our home. We satisfy our eyes with anything less than beholding our God. You and I want to bless the Lord this Christmas. Why don't we start by praying for his visitation? Let's make it our daily habit to begin to offer up this prayer like incense day after day. Lord, please come and visit us. Come back. You know, before the pages of the Gospels opened, it had been generation after generation of complete Silence. There was no prophet in the land. There was no word from God. But when Zechariah and the people began to pray, God finally opened the mouth of his prophet. And what do you know? After 400 years of silence, what comes out But the first Christmas carol? The proclamation that Jesus Christ was on his way. I wonder what the Lord might do if we prayed for him to visit us. He might save our children. He might bring great salvation to those captive, to sin and temptation and despair. He might even return. Number one, pray this Christmas for the visitation of the Lord. Now, when Zechariah sings about the visitation of the Lord, he's not talking about a visit as in some kind of polite, just, you know, pop in like a visit from your neighbor, right? Or a visit like when you go to the tourist shop or when you go to visit your distant, you know, dear Aunt Polly. The visitation of the Lord means two things for Zechariah. Let me read to you verse 68 and 69 again. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited... And redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. When the Lord visits, it means two things. It means redemption and salvation. When the Lord comes, this is what he brings. Redemption and salvation. As we pray, it stirs within us a certain hope and a certain belief. We hope in his redemption and we believe in his salvation. So let's look at these two briefly. First, we hope in his redemption. We were driving home from Pennsylvania yesterday. And my oldest son, Griffin, from the back seat, he says, "Dad, why did God appear to his people in all those different forms in the Old Testament, you know? Like a burning bush, or a rock that gave water, or A pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Or you remember whenever he came as an angel and he wrestled with Jacob? Why did he come in all of those different forms? And it's a great question. And it gets at our hope. It's a question that gets at our hope. Paul tells the Colossians that all of these appearances and these things of the Old Testament were shadows. They were showing us a little bit, bit By a bit of what God is like. But a burning bush couldn't die for our sins. A a rock spouting water couldn't ransom us out of slavery. Even an angel couldn't hang on a cross in our place. It had to be a man. After all of these symbols and shadows and appearances in the first half of the Bible and the Old Testament, all of them were pointing us to the only redemption that was going to come at Christmas. The only ransom for men is the man, Jesus Christ. Human life for human life. This is what makes Christmas unlike any of the other visits or visitations of the Lord in history before it. Because God visited his people in various forms and fashions, but at Christmas, he visited as a man. He came as a humble human baby. He visited us as our only hope for salvation and redemption. That's the hope of Zechariah. He had laid hope, laid eyes on something he had hoped against all hope that God would give him a son. And the strangest thing happens as he looks down at this little uh, bundle of swaddling cloth and, and, and flesh and bones. He looks into this little face smiling up at him and this is what he realizes. One of these. One of these. This is how God is going to redeem us. With one of these, our redemption is going to come as one of these. The Son of God will be the Son of Man. One day, Zechariah even realizes that on his birthday, he prophesies that this baby that he's holding in his arms will one day point to his cousin and proclaim to all the world the Lamb of God the redemption, the one who takes away the sins of the world. This is your redemption. This one is your ransom, the price for your salvation. You know, the end of the year isn't usually a time of hope for most people, hope for redemption even, because we know that the New Year's right around the corner. Chad was telling me how he says, I'm getting back on the, uh, the old diet train next week. (laughs) <laughs> right? We, we think of the new year as an opportunity to redeem ourselves, you know? We hope to redeem our overeating. We hope to redeem our lack of exercise, redeem our laziness, maybe redeem our slackness in keeping our house clean, redeem our time. And in all these instances, what we're talking about is that we hope that in the future, we hope for a better future. We hope that we will do better, We hope to make up somehow for the sins and backslidings of 2018 by redeeming ourselves in 2019. But this is a cheap sort of redemption, and it's the only redemption that the world has to offer. You do your best to make up for your mistakes. But do you and I really want to believe that we are worth so little to God, That you and I can buy our life out of slavery to sin with just a few extra sit-ups? A little less lying? A little more church attendance? Or maybe let's put it in Old Testament terms. Would you really be happy if God forgave your sins because you sacrificed a lamb in your own place? Essentially saying that the value of a lamb's life and your life are the same in the eyes of God. Would you be happy with that? Maybe two lambs. Your life is worth two lambs to God. A hundred lambs. What about a cow? Would you be satisfied if God said, I'll accept a cow in your place? A cow can be your redemption because your life and a cow's life are basically of the same value. Would you be happy for God to say your life is of such little worth to him? No. Your life whether you are a believer today or not, is worth more than a million lambs or an infinite number of cows in the eyes of God. The psalmist tells us, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That is the value of a human life in the eyes of God. Which is why this Christmas, we all need to look into the face of, of a tiny baby and realize the price of our redemption is the Son of God. That is the value of our life in His eyes. That is what you cost. That is what you are worth. God gave His only Son In exchange for you. And he said, this is an equal exchange. Abandon all hope this Christmas and any other redemption other than the one that God has provided for you in the person of Jesus Christ. Because you have infinite value to the God of heaven. And he gave his only son to have you as his own. Friends, if you have placed your hope in Christ for your redemption this Christmas, then there is yet hope. Because at Christmas, we don't celebrate uh, the birth of a baby ghost. Uh, We certainly don't celebrate the birth of a baby Minnie Mouse. But we don't celebrate the birth of a baby soul, do we? We celebrate the birth of a baby boy, body and soul, a human being. And if God has paid for us with his son, Jesus Christ, body and soul, to redeem us, body and soul, then he will not be satisfied until he has gotten what he has paid for. God will not be shortchanged. Jesus gave his life, body and soul for you. And so there is yet hope for us in redemption this Christmas as we look forward to the day when God gets everything he paid for the resurrection of our bodies. Christmas celebration is an expression of our inner longings. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we were saved. That's our hope. Hope in his redemption. Zechariah's hope was not put to shame. Christmas came. He dared to hope. And Christmas came. Our hope will not be put to shame either. The Jesus Christ who died on the cross and who was raised from the dead and who has ascended to the right hand of God, he will return. And on the day that he comes back, just like as Zechariah was singing and celebrating the birth of John at the coming of Jesus the first time, when Jesus comes back, We are all going to be born anew in bodies that will never perish, spoil, or fade. This Christmas, let us hope in His redemption. Well, thirdly and finally, believe in His salvation. Zechariah expected salvation to come from one house, from one family, from one lineage. Verse 69 says, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. You guys know that uh, this fall we've been working through 1 Samuel together, and just before Thanksgiving we made it to that mountain peak story of David and Goliath, right in the middle of 1 Samuel. You guys remember, before David entered the battlefield, what happened for 40 days? Every time Goliath stepped into the battlefield, what did all the people do? All the Israelites, including King Saul, they turn and ran. Forty days of this, Goliath steps forward, they run, they hide, they find a foxhole, they find a rock, they cover themselves and hide. But when the Lord provides David, and David kills Goliath, and David is standing there with his foot on Goliath's chest, and Goliath's head in his hands, what do all the people do? They run! But they run the opposite way this time. They run into the battle. They follow David, and it says they were slaying the Philistines all along the way. What changed? Well, God raised up a horn of salvation for them in the house of David, right? Brothers and sisters, the victorious Christian life begins with faith in a Savior King. Our fight with sin and death begins with a firm belief that that fight has already been won. The salvation that Zechariah is singing in his Christmas carol about is none other than the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. The son of David, the one that we're reminded, is the king of the Jews on the placard that hung on his cross. He saved us from our greatest enemy, death itself, cutting off its head. With a cross. Children. Kids. If there's anyone here who does not believe. There is nothing you could do to bless the Lord more. And then to believe in his salvation this Christmas. There's nothing you could do more. To put your faith in Jesus Christ. But I also want to challenge any believers that are here this morning to realize that believing in His salvation is not merely a theoretical thing. It's a practical and functional thing. Believe in His salvation has legs. It means we charge into the battlefield, not in our own strength, not in our own power, but because we are following the horn of salvation, Jesus Christ, who's been raised for us in the house of David. Trusting in His power. Trusting He has put death to death. But hear me. Belief in His salvation does mean that we charge into the battlefield. Christmas is a time for you to take steps forward in your fight against sin and temptation in your life. That's what Christmas celebration should be like. Maybe the holidays are a time where you're tempted to despair or doubt God's goodness because you're reminded of lost loved ones or your family is a wreck. Maybe you have temptation to doubt God's love and care for you. Don't run and hide. Believe in His salvation. Trust in your Savior King. Find brothers and sisters who will fight this Christmas side by side with you who say, come join us. We want to love you. We want to be with you. We want to weep with you. We want to help you to know that even though it doesn't feel this way at Christmas, God does love you. He does care for you. He hasn't forgotten you. And he is still saving you and ever forever will. Maybe the holidays are filled with temptation to materialism or the wantsies, as my wife calls it. Maybe you see all these shining, sparkling things on your iPhone screen or in magazines or online or in the malls. Believe in His salvation. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Maybe you need to give a significant portion of what you were going to spend on Christmas to missions or to help those in need or to a local ministry. Or maybe the holidays are filled with temptations to rivalry and comparison and jealousy. As you look at what others get, and you didn't get it. You didn't get what you wanted. Believe in his salvation. Know that he calls you brother. He, Jesus, calls you sister. Everything that he stands to inherit from the Father, he has already promised to share with you, not halfsies, but 100%. What's the point of envy and covetousness when, brothers and sisters, we stand to inherit the whole earth? Believe in His salvation. Well, friends, our Christmas caroling, this Advent season, has only just begun. Let us fill this Advent with the constant refrain. Blessed be the Lord as we pray for His visitation. Hope In his redemption. And believe in his salvation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus we thank you that you've come. But we long to see you. And we know that we are blessed for believing. Even though we do not see. But that doesn't change our desire. And the longing of our heart. Which is for you to come back. To visit us. And to be Emmanuel God with us forever. Until then, Lord, we will continue to sing and carol and celebrate and bless your name. And it's in that name, Jesus Christ, that we trust and pray. Amen.